Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome. Today I'm speaking with Ricardo Lopez, the author of Makers of Democracy, a transnational history of the middle classes in Colombia, published by Duke University Press this year. We all think we understand what we mean when we say middle class, or for that matter, democracy. Ricardo Lopez's aim is to force us to consider how constructed those terms are and the ways they've been constructed in support of one another, rooted in a hierarchical masculine notion of class and an exclusivist notion of democracy. Here, he's talking about Colombia, but these ideas will resonate probably with many other places. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello, Ricardo. Thanks so much for talking to me today. I'm very excited to speak with you about your book. Thank you, Alejandro. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about the book. So, okay, let's just start uh, right in the in the middle of things. This is a book about the middle of the middle class, um, and it's something that we think we understand, but that we actually rarely study. And I'm curious as to how you came to the project. Well, you know, there are several aspects as I how I, I came to this project. Of course, you know, yeah, there are some autobiographical, you know, elements to the project itself. So, um, you know, back in the 19, well, I've been working on, you know, the middle classes for, for a while. And back in the 1990s in um, Colombia, I remember a couple of conversations with some, you know, fellow students back then. And we were in... Uh, in a protest um, at the National University, and on a couple of occasions, um, a fellow uh, classmate said something along the lines, you know, criticizing me that, you know, um, he told me in Spanish, se le sale la clase media, which, you know, meant like, you know, I, I, I don't remember what I did or what I said, but, you know, he told me, you're revealing your, you know, your true class self. And since then, I started, you know, thinking about what, you know, what, what does it mean, actually, that you're revealing my middle classness in such a way? So uh, I think I started, you know, asking some of the questions what it meant to be part of, you know, uh, the middle classes. But then, you know, also when I, when I came to the States to do my grad work, um, I also started, you know, thinking about, you know, the questions of class. And at that particular moment, I'm talking about, you know, late 1990s, early 2000s, you know, class as a category of historical analysis was pretty much, you know, passe. So, you know, that was, you know, the one hand just trying to, you know, figure out what it meant, you know, to be part of a middle class, but on the other, you know, class was indeed a category of, you know, historical analysis that wasn't necessarily, you know, important. And at the same time, you know, the very much, you know, discussion of, the very notion of middle class, right? The, 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 the unstoppable discussion about how important middle classes, you know, are for, you know, democracy, modernity, and the so-called end of, you know, uh, politics. So, you know, the combination of three, you know, these three aspects led me to start thinking about, you know, the middle classes. And at, at first I thought, well, you know, nobody has actually thought about, you know, the middle classes in Latin America, which I don't think that was necessarily the case. And at first I, you know, thought I would actually, you know, fit out a historiographical, you know, void. But, you know, then I realized that we have actually talked a lot about, you know, the middle classes in Latin America and across, you know, the Americas. So and another question about how you framed it. Um, it's also a book about democracy. 
in the title, right? Um, but you frame yeah. it transnationally. And I thought that was very interesting and unusual. Usually books about either democracy or the middle classes, or even both, are nationally based, right? Um, those categories yeah. are almost always defined in national terms. So, so why the transnational framing? Well, the transnational frame, you know, framing, I mean, you know, and as, and as I said in the book, is you know, as a transnational framing, and then, you know, I have what we may, you know, see as a national case. But transnational framing allow us to, you know, think about these middle class, you know, realities as, you know, as a way to, you know, as a way to see how the very notion of middle classness has been historically used to categorize and more specifically hierarchize, you know, notions of democracy. So I think, you know, the first part of the book is trying to get at how, you know, uh, middle classes became associated with a reality of what we now call, you know, the global north or North Atlantic societies. And Latin America became associated with a two-class society, oligarchies and, you know, popular groups or elites and, you know, masses. So I tried to historicize, you know, how in a transnational framework, you know, intellectual policymakers and um, other historical actors are thinking about the middle class to create what I, you know, refer in the book, the imperial difference, right? That, you know, the, the, the very association of, you know, becoming middle class meant um, to create a, a democratic society, a way to criticize how societies lack democracy or democracy is weak. So all of these ideas are possible to historicize only in a transnational framing. That the, the national, you know, case will only allow us to just, you know, show that a middle class actually existed in this case in Colombia, and then you know making a claim to participate in a charming circle of, you know, democracy. But given that what I want to do is to criticize democracy itself by standing the middle classes, the transnational, you know, framing became quite crucial for me. Yeah, and I, I really liked the way you opened the book with the social scientific debates. And I was actually quite surprised to learn just how much uh, sort of effort and energy was put into this kind of study of the middle classes. You mentioned at one point that the Pan-American Union publishes a six-volume study of the middle classes in 1951. That Was that surprising to you, that that, that kind of um, volume of, of sort of ink spilled about the middle classes? Well, you know, I, I mean, that was one of the very first documents I, I, I found and read carefully. I didn't, I didn't know about, you know, the document because, you know, previous studies, I'm thinking about, you know, the work of Brian Westby and David Parker, which, you know, I, I think were actually path-breaking. Uh, you know, rethinking about the middle classes. So I knew about the uh, the document. What I didn't know was actually, you know, the production of, you know, the document itself, all the discussion behind the document. So when I worked with, uh, with at the um, Organization of American States Library and Archives, you could actually see all the discussion as to why, you know, the study was, you know, necessary. And the main idea was like, you know, we really need to, you know, have intellectuals, policymakers um, and society in general in Latin America, start, you know, thinking about, you know, what they call middle class terms. Right. So, you know, that major effort was to create, let's say, you know, some, you know, middle class conscientiousness among some policymakers of the need to create that, you know, middle class. The study itself, but it's actually really interesting because you know, previously to that study, there were other, you know, preoccupations. And actually, you know, my early work on the middle class is focused on the first half of the you know, 20th century, 
But what that study actually does is to create the silence of middle-classness in order to say we need a middle class in Latin America. So that's actually the, that, um, that part was very surprising to me. That is to say that how they create the void of, you know, the lack of a middle class in order to make, you know, a claim to, you know, policymaker that they needed actually to create a middle class. Because, of course, there was a middle class, you know, in place, historically speaking, um, in the 1950s. But, you know, in terms of how they actually, you know, perceived the problem was, well, you know, they create the lack in order to, you know, promote or legitimize the need to create a middle class as a central part of, you know, imperial politics in a context of, you know, uh, decolonization, um, uh, political radicalization. Right. And it was a very specific idea of a middle class, right? So you talk about that a lot. It was literally at the center of a particular order, kind of keeping the two, the oligarchy and the and the sort of underclasses at bay. And there was this kind of idea, right, that it was apolitical um, and... and and uh, they had they had a very specific role. I was really interested in that, and I was I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that. Well, you know, here what you know my my main argument here is that you know the effort is to make which is actually going to translate into you know major neoliberal you know definitions of society. But here we what we see is to define you know middle classes as a political as you know what I try to you know show is that that this become politically proper. That is to say, what the, the middle class are supposed to do and to say and to act is, you know, politically proper. So we're talking about, you know, professionals as, you know, the manifestation of, you know, objectivity and making a claim to, you know, what I call the, the right to rule in democracy. That is to say, an, an apolitical way in order to control both, you know, the oligarchies and, you know, the popular classes then you actually, you know, have the small business owners as an, again, a political force because they would actually, you know, focus on, you know, the notion of entrepreneurial, you know, people. And then you have, you know, white collar workers as, you know, the possibility to live in a, you know, um, class harmonious, you know, uh, society. Again, as a manifestation of what they thought, it wasn't a political, you know, society. But my claim is that, you know, what they wanted to do is to transform that, you know, notion of being apolitical into a political proper, you know, role for, you know, democracy so that anything beyond that particular definition, you know, uh, became defined as political and therefore as abnormal to, you know, democracy itself. So they are trying to actually, you know, exhaust and limit what, you know, democracy meant by associating all of these three actors as the manifestation of democracy. And you make the point that this is all deeply gendered. Absolutely. Can you talk more about that? That was one of the more fascinating parts of the book, I thought. Yeah, this is just, you know, for me, you know, the question of gender is absolutely crucial to, you know, rethink, you know, many aspects, not only of the question of democracy, but also how we actually perceive the very definition of, you know, middle classness. So in this aspect that we're talking about, which is, you know, the first part of the book, a way to make the claim of this a political force, again, defined as a political proper, that is the way to do things, moving us away from a two-class, you know, society in which you know, the oligarchies were actually ruled or, you know, the, uh, the the popular classes would rule as well, was that, you know, they needed to delegitimize these two groups by feminizing, you know, them. That is to say, but to imagine them as a feminine force 
improper force political even you know for so i have some of the stories and you know we you know that i, I provide examples there of how some of these major um, intellectuals we're talking about you know orlando falsborda and others you know they would actually you know see the elites as you know the manifestation of feminist you know behavior right the question of you know dependency of land instead of actually you know promoting the idea of you know conquering the land through you know entrepreneurial you know values which was associated not associated not only with you know middle classness but also with some masculine you know values so you know some of the examples you know here speaks you know volumes about how these entrepreneurial values were you know foreign to elite constitution because that elite was imagined as you know feminine so what we actually see that they are making a claim that improper democracy or a political democracy quote unquote you know the association was with a masculine you know masculine value so gender play a fundamental role to delegitimize both oligarchies and popular groups and legitimize what was seen again as proper you know politics you know embodied by a middle class man in some cases, because I also, you know, show how, you know, in, in other cases, you know, um, women was seen as the manifestation of proper politics, particularly with the representation of the state. That was indeed, you know, surprising to me. I was expecting to, you know, see the exclusion of women as, you know, professional. And there was some aspect to that. But, you know, what is really interesting is that there was a major effort by the National Front to include women because they thought that women could actually be, you know, good representatives of the state in the case of, you know, being, you know, professional in order to, let's say, you know, water down the, uh, the, the, the class struggles and, you know, the violence that was experienced during the 1950s. So, you know, women would actually become the representation of the state insofar as they would actually comply with a very, you know, a gender notion of that womanhood, meaning well, they were going to actually, you know, cultivate the sentiments of the elite so that they could actually, you know, become proper elites. Yeah, there was a very fascinating interplay there where women were at once sort of um, meant to conform to these kinds of gendered expectations about the workplace. And the workplace was a kind of white collar workplace, right? Not capital in labor, but kind of service. So they were expected to smile and be nice and all of that kind of thing. That's not really so different from what we see today. Yeah. Uh, but then at the same time, they were also meant to kind of masculinize the, the, um, their men, right? To make them more ma- masculine by, this, by the fact of their gendered existence, I guess. Yeah. I, I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah. And at the same time, with the case of, you know, the um, small business owners, and as we all know, you know, evidence is always partial. But as far as I can tell, you know, um, in the case of small business owners, women did not receive a, um, you know, um, a state credit, right, to, you know, promote a small business. It was mostly a, um, a masculine, you know, effort because of the notion of the entrepreneurial values was so attached to a notion of, you know, masculinity that in terms of, you know, education, you know, financial education and material access to, you know, state resources, Women did not have, I have not, you know, proof of, you know, the, the even the possibility of women, you know, applying to those state resources and being granted those, you know, resources. It may well be the case that they were able to get those, you know, to those resources 
through, you know, their husbands. But the idea, ideal was that, you know, men as men would actually have access to some of the resources. So you actually, you know, see gender playing in different aspects at the very same time. I right? tried to redefine what, you know, it meant to be middle class and what it meant to be a proper, you know, democracy. So you must have gotten this question before, but you don't talk about race. Uh, and I'm wondering um, what the um, if if the, if race uh, sort of comes into the story at all. Absolutely, I do. I do mention just you know a little bit with you know in one of the chapters in which you know I I, I see with a, a couple of um, intellectuals there that you know try to regionalize the formation of the middle classes in Colombia associated Antioquia with you know the the, the the panacea of modernity and democracy. So there are some elements of, you know, race there, but I definitely, you know, do not address the question of, you know, race throughout the book. And, you know, I have to say that, you know, it was a practical, pragmatic decision that I said, well, you know, I need to finish this. So I won't be able to talk about, you know, race. It's something that I'm, you know, working on at the moment. Um, but the main idea here is, you know, the connection between a notion of, you know, being in the middle in terms of class, and then the notion of being in the middle in terms of race, that is to say the very notion of, you know, mestizaje. So the very notion of, you know, middle classness was, you know, talked about as a way to, you know, a, um, overcome, you know, racial conflict, right? And I imagine this, you know, this notion of, you know, democracy as, you know, well, in discussion about it with, in discussions um, about, you know, uh, racial democracy in the case of, you know, Brazil or in the case of, you know, Colombia with the notion of mestizaje, that millennium, you know, point so that, you know, democracy would actually, you know, provide the very conditions to create a society that, you know, would indeed, you know, silence people of African descent, of, you know, indigenous background by creating a society, you know, predicated on the notion of, you know, mestizaje. That would actually, you know, be one of, you know, the main, you know, reasons. But, you know, the other part, which is, you know, the second part of, you know, the book, but, you know, middle classes start challenging all of these ideas to redefine who they were. Then what we actually, you know, see is, you know, people of, mostly people of African descent, I'm talking about the 1970s and 1980s, try to push, you know, the boundaries of this notion of, you know, mestizaje associated with middle classness and say, well, you know, we as, you know, black people are also part of, you know, a middle class and making that, you know, questioning that association. So, you know, race is indeed, you know, central part of, you know, the book. But as I said, you know, earlier, I cannot, you know, you know, in order to finish the book, I had to actually, you know, exclude this question and it's something that I'm, you know, working on right now. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it comes in and it makes a perfect sense why you, chose to focus on gender because I actually think that uh, in some ways the gendered aspects have not been talked about as much. And so that uh, is a really important thing. But I want to get to this second uh, part of the book because here is where there are all kinds of plot developments really that um, I found surprising um, and and really fascinating. The, 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 you open with this idea of now the middle classes are being kind of are 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 semi there, but but you you characterize them as being in the middle of a mess, yeah. uh, and this the sense of frustration that they're feeling in the 1960s, and so I'm wondering if you can talk about that that mess and and how they they dealt with it. Well, you know the mess. I mean, at this I'm just you know quoting you know a, a, a historical actor there, but you know the mess. I think you know 
that you know he is referring to is you know the political radicalization of the 1960s and 1970s. So I'm speaking to you know two particular you know historiographical questions. The first one, let's say, is at the national level, and this is a very powerful narrative that you know the 1960s and 1970s in Colombia, you know, were those you know those decades in which you know everybody knew what the revolution or what, you know, democracy was about and that the middle class had no role to play, that they were just, you know, pawns of, you know, the elites. And one of the things I try to do is that in the middle of the mess, they play a fundamental role, you know, shaping some of, you know, the uh, uh, radical politics of the 1960s and 1970s. The second historiographical question is, let's say, more of, you know, the Cold War and global 60s, Cold War studies and global 60s, which is, you know, they, they for me, it's a tautological you know, argument because we assume that the 1960s was, you know, let's say a radical decade that made everybody, you know, radical. But we do not explain at the level of subjectivity why people actually join, you know, the left. And the left here is, you know, broadly understood. So one of the efforts I try to do is that when I say, you know, the middle, oh, you know, putting this, you know, historical act of the middle of the mess, is try to see at the level of subjectivity why certain people, they say, um, offer legitimacy to the national front and at the same time question the national front and then other people actually join, you know, the level. What are the historical, you know, conditions that led to that, you know, uh, different political processes? So I try to see this through, you know, um, ethnographic work, um, through, you know, different um, um, interview and, of course, different, you know, archival work to show that, you know, this political radicalization was not predetermined and that, you know, when we think about, you know, the middle classes seriously, we can actually rethink what we perceive, you know, to be the cold war that is to say, and I'm thinking about here the work of Greg Grandin, in which, you know, he says, you know, revolution and counter-revolution, revolution mostly associated with, you know, popular groups and Latin America and counter-revolution with, the, um, elites and the United States. And what I actually, you know, see that when you look at the middle classes, that particular distinction between revolution and counter-revolution doesn't necessarily, you know, work. And we start, you know, thinking about more complex way of, you know, different political projects. Gender, yet again, play a fundamental role because the question of gender shape both revolutions and counter, you know, revolution. And men join forces, you know, both from, you know, the counter-revolution side and revolution side to, you know, make a claims to um, class belonging and the right to, to rule within a notion of revolution. So there's a real, what comes through is a real kind of split then in the middle classes, right? What you call the making of the petit bourgeoisie mm-hmm. uh, and then the, and, and the, and, and the the rest, right? So yeah. there's this idea of um, the integration into party politics, politicization, this split off of people going in in, in very different directions. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and this and this is you know the the, the I, I consider you know a central argument um, of the book to explain who we are in you know the present because of, you know although I you know finish the, the argument. Uh, while located at the end of the, you know, this is story by, you know, early 1980s, what I actually see is, you know, the, the way how current discussions evoke that particular, you know, tension that is to say a radical petit bourgeoisie. And let's say, you know, to put it quite simply, a more traditional um, middle class uh, formation. So, and this petit bourgeoisie, they did, you know, 
do uh, a lot of political work in terms of, you know, question of education, questions of, you know, health as a right, you know, different, you know, aspects that they indeed, you know, uh, fought um, hard to materialize. And then you actually have the other part, the middle class, um, the tra- more traditional, you know, middle class. And, and what I tried to show in the, in the last chapter of the book is how the latter, that is to say the more traditional middle class, um, went out over the more radical one. So that when we actually, you know, hear all of these discourses um, right now talking about the global middle class, there is a silence at the core of those discourses that is to say a more radical, you know, middle class. And I'm very critical of that radical middle class, but 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 I, I just want to, you know, us to remember when we talk about, you know, middle class, we actually have to know what definition of middle class we're talking about and what association between that definition and a definition of democracy we are making. We usually, you know, make this in a very unconscious way. We think about, you know, global middle class as the representation of democracy. But what I try to show is that this is a historical product of, you know, political struggles in which a major, you know, a um, challenge to that mid- global middle class is usually silenced. Yeah, and then that that struggle turns tragic at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, the the violence and the eventual dominance of neoliberalism. And you have this sentence, I think it ends the book actually. I'm just going to read it because I was really struck by it. The middle class became the archetype of peace as violence, cohesive society as a class hierarchy, and democracy as a dictatorship of capital. Not to give away the ending or anything, but it's quite bleak kind of place to land. Um, th- did you think that's where you were going to end up when you when you started? Sure. The- not not at all. Not at all. I mean, it's just, you know, I have to say, you know, Alejandro, the question of, you know, democracy for me was a big realization. And that was actually, you know, I mean, this, as I said, I've been working on this, you know, for a while. I did a force. You know, the the, uh, the the study was only about, you know, professionals mostly. And then, you know, I did more research on small, small business owners and white collar, you know, workers. And, you know, and in doing that, I did realize what I thought it was actually, you know, a major, you know, part of my argument, which was I am not trying to. That was actually you know, the first what I was trying to do to say, well, you know, the middle classes are not democratic. Right. I mean, and that was, you know, almost a fixed section for me. But then, you know, when I started doing, you know, the, the, the research for, you know, the, the white collar workers and, you know, small business owners, particularly small business owners, I did realize, well, this is indeed a history of democracy. It is a way for me to criticize democracy itself. So middle class studies, not only middle class studies, but, in, you know, mostly middle class studies are fixated with this idea with this particular question created in the 1950s and 1960s, which is, is the middle class democratic or not? And what I try to do in the book is to historicize the question itself. Because then we get, you know, the answer is usually, well, in some cases it is, and in some cases it is not. What I'm trying to do is to frame, you know, to historicize the very framework that lead us to think that, you know, the middle class can potentially be democratic or not. So then that leads me to, you know, start asking questions about the very, you know, historical conditions of, you know, democracy. So at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do with this work is to see 
And that, that's, you know, why I think, you know, yeah, the, the very last sentence of the book speaks volumes, because what I'm trying to do is that when we talk about, you know, democracy, we think we know what, you know, democracy means. And by studying the middle class, what I actually, you know, see, even in the most radical manifestations of middle classness, democracy has been promoted as a way to consolidate different forms of class and gender domination. So when we actually see democracy and domination are not a contradiction, you know, a contradiction in terms, are not an oxymoron, quite the opposite. Democracy, you know, historically speaking, uh, means different forms of domination. And then the question becomes, what kind of, you know, domination is more legitimate than others? That speaks to our present, because, you know, our present, we talk about, you know, we are, you know, democracy is in crisis. And when we actually say this, it's just because, you know, the middle classes are, you know, disappearing, particularly now, you know, the so-called global north. So when we actually say that, it's like, oh, now we actually have to return to a middle class society. And my argument is, well, you know, when we return to a middle class society, that doesn't necessarily you know, mean that we are actually getting away from, you know, domination by elites, but we are actually, you know, making a claim to a different class of different, you know, form of class and gender domination. That's a long answer to, you know, your question. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and and I actually wanted to touch on something that you mentioned also, um, just as a way to wrap up. Is this a warning with regards to the present and the future? I mean, it really seems to end on a note about neoliberalism and we need to really think hard about what we're what we're doing here. Absolutely. I think this is just, you know, yeah. Okay, well, you know, I would say that after Michel Foucault, all of us are, you know, historians of the present. But I do, you know, I do take that, you know, um methodological and even, you know, political um um for quite seriously, and it is to you know, did question our you know present, and here you know one of the things that uh, I would argue you know neoliberalism has you know achieved is to close down you know political possibilities, and and in that process, then you know yeah, the very notion of you know middle classes, the middle class is as I said in the book is you know this this um um. Um, dictatorial, you know, uh, political future, right? That is the only, you know, absolute, you know, answer pretty much to everything. We have a, you know, a crisis in democracy. What do we need? Well, we need, you know, middle class society. We need to expand, you know, middle classes. And my, you know, if, you know, my my argument is that, you know, in doing so, we are actually closing down other possibilities. And just to be honest, at first I thought, you know, I would actually, you know. Um, uh, try to make the argument that we have to go beyond democracy and, you know, think about something else. I wasn't able to make that argument at the end. So that's why, you know, the very last, you know, sentence of the epilogue, I said, well, you know, I'm trying to approach democracy agonistically, meaning, well, you know, maybe, you know, there are some sources of inspiration in democracy and even the association of a radical, you know, middle class and democracy that can actually, you know, provide, you know, um, inspiration for um, our future but. In this particular case, you know, I, I, I see that, that, you know, democracy defined as, you know, middle class society is not, you know, the answer that, you know, most people would actually think it is. How do you think this uh, is going to be or has it been received in Colombia? Well, the, that's a rather, you know, interesting question. I have, you know, I have planned a couple of, you know, book presentations um, next month. And, and I think, you know, yeah. 
one of the most difficult questions uh, for me that I'm facing there is what most historians and other, you know, scholars regard as the not existence of, you know, uh, middle class. And what they mean by that is that there is no such, you know, political identity as, you know, middle class. But I, and as, and I hope I actually, you know, the book, you know, shows, I actually, you know, try to do my best to show that, you know, there's been a political project, there's been actually, you know, uh, political organizations in the name of, you know, the middle classes. Um, so I think, you know, the reception is going to create debate, let's put it that way, because some people think that, you know, the middle classes do not exist as a political a, um, uh, project. It's merely a, um, uh, um, well, it's just a creation by an old power elite just in order to consolidate their, you know, uh, political project is just to fool people. It's just, you know, a, a myth is merely, you know, a, uh, um, uh, well, uh, you know, let's say, you know, fake news, right? So that, you know, it doesn't really exist that people think about that, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, exist. And, uh, you know, my argument is that, you know, I've, if we keep doing that, then, you know, the, the very notion of, you know, the middle class keep, you know, winning because the behind those arguments is like, you know, if we only had a proper, you know, real middle class, then we would not, you know, be, you know, having all of these problems with, you know, political corruption, political polarization and everything else. And my argument is, you know, there has been actually historically a, pol- a, a middle class and the answer is not necessarily there. That would actually be one. And then the second, I'm sure that, you know, there's going to be a lot of debate for Chapter 7 because I, I most people who actually be reading this book, perhaps from, you know, um, uh, <laughs> uh, let's say an old generation of historians, I think they're going to find themselves in that particular chapter. And I think they're going to react uh, because, of course, I take up, you know, critical stand and they're going to react to, the very, you know, critique that there is a, a class, you know, claim at the center of uh, making a revolution possible in the 1970s. So I think that that's going to be a, a chapter that people are going to react to, which I guess that's, that's, that's supposed to be. Yeah, it's better that they're talking, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. One uh, last question before I, I let you go. Uh, what are you working on now? Uh, what I'm working with, you know, uh, what I'm working on a couple of articles and then, you know, um, a larger project. Let me start with the larger project. The larger project is going to be, you know, um, a, a, a history of, you know, domination in in Colombia, dedicating a transnational, you know, framework. It is the result of some, you know, um, dissatisfaction with this particular, you know, book. Um, so I just, I just want to start to, you know, you know, uh, rethink. The, the formation of the urban elites in Colombia. Um, so, you know, thinking about elites in Bogota, Cali, Barranquilla, um, and Medellin. So I'm just trying to, you know, to see elite formation. Some of the questions that I asked for, you know, middle class formation, I want to apply to elite formation and, you know, offer an ethnographic study of how privilege get, you know, reproduced. Um, so, that's actually part of a larger project of a history of domination in Colombia that is not necessarily, you know, uh, predicated on the questions of violence. I find that, you know, some of the explanations of how domination works in, uh, in Colombia is very, you know, the understanding is very, you know, absolutist. That is to say that, you know, we, you know, think we know how domination works in uh, Colombia. That again, 
it speaks to our present when we, you know, discuss questions of, you know, um, uh, peace. Um, so that's one project, a history of domination in Colombia by focusing mostly on, you know, the elite. And then I have a couple of, you know, other projects, you know, the uh, one that tries to historicize, which is, you know, partially, you know, done in the book, but it's not fully done. And it's just trying to explain the very, you know, creation of, you know, the void. Why do we think that, you know, the middle classes, and particularly in Colombia, do not exist as a political movement? And, you know, my argument is that, you know, it's actually a, a middle class production um, in itself. And then I have other, you know, uh, project, an edited volume with a colleague of mine, um, uh, a collection of essays um, on the histories of Colombia, 19th and, you know, 20th century, in the effort to what I call in this book, deprovincializing the uh, uh the histories of, you know, Colombia that usually appear as unique in comparison to other Latin American, you know, nations. So we are trying to to do that. And the only way to do that is, that, you know, in a collective way. We cannot do it, you know, just, you know, individually. So that's, that's the last project. Thank you so much. It's been real a pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you very much, Alejandra. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next ones. I have Jorge Giovannetti, Alexander Rocklin and Alexandrine Boudreau-Fournier lined up for interviews. Hope to see you again.